Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Today, we serve you with another amazing interview. Craig Chapman is a senior manager at Actualize Consulting, and he is specialized in treasury systems, treasury transformation projects, and netting, which is the topic of the day. In this episode, expect to learn what is netting, what is bilateral netting, what is multilateral nettings, why do companies use netting and how, We also discuss the different forms of netting, the benefits of it, and the challenges that come along with its implementation. Craig also walks us through a use case he actually implemented for a client of Actualize Consulting, and this is just fascinating. We, of course, discuss what the team of Actualize Consulting do, the treasury offering, and much more. It was very interesting interviewing Craig. He developed a tremendous experience of treasury topics and treasury transformation projects. He managed end-to-end netting implementation projects, and it clearly shows. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as Hussam and I did. If that's the case, please do not hesitate to share the episode and rate us on your favorite podcast app. Also, if you would like to reach out to Craig or to the Actualize Consulting team, we'll put all the links in the show notes. Just head to the description. Last but not least, we published an ebook. If you are dreaming of finding a book explaining the ABCs of corporate treasury, well, do not search anymore. We got you covered. Head to the link in the description to download it. And the best part, it is completely free. With all that being said, please welcome Craig Chapman. Craig, welcome to the show. Very nice to have you. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Craig, we wanted to have you on the show uh, to introduce yourself and explain to us what you guys do at Actualize Consulting. So please start with yourself. Uh, who are you and what do you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Craig Chapman, and I'm a senior manager in the Treasury and Capital Markets Group at Actualize Consulting. Uh, I specialize mainly in treasury cash management space, which includes in-house banking and multilateral netting structures. Uh, and I've been implementing treasury technology to transform treasury departments for over 20 years now, working for multiple uh, leading treasury management system providers, as well as a big four consulting firm, and now with Actualize for the last six years. Okay, very cool. Now, there's a lot of big words in there. I didn't know what they mean. So we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But so you mentioned Actualize Consulting. What exactly does Actualize Consulting do and where are they based? Sure. Uh, so Actualize Consulting is a boutique uh, professional services firm. It was founded in 2003. Uh, we provide expertise to a client base of 300 plus Fortune 1000 clients. Um, we have many different service offerings, mainly focusing on the treasury and risk management space. And we offer solutions to streamline and optimize clients' operations by redesigning business processes and improving the use of technology. Uh, we're starting to get spread out, and so now Actualize is uh, headquartered in Northern Virginia uh, in the U.S., and we have offices in New York, uh, London, Canada, and now Mexico, uh, all staffed and supporting local clients. Uh, types of treasury consulting work we do would uh, encompass working on uh, treasury operations, risk management, and technology advisory. So in the treasury operation space, we're focusing on liquidity management, payment management, debt and investment structuring, 
uh, risk management, we might get into hedge strategy advisory or financial exposure management. And then on the technology advisory, we do a lot of things there in terms of analyzing your current state architecture, doing gap analysis, developing treasury roadmaps, doing vendor evaluations, system implementations. And we also have a separate arm that's doing custom reporting uh, in the business intelligence space. So we're kind of uh, over the uh, overarching on all treasury topics. All right, Craig. So it seems that you and Actualis Consulting are actually the perfect people to talk to uh, when it comes to treasury and the topic we want to discuss today, which is netting. Uh, you mentioned it in the in the presentation and in the in the introduction. Can you tell us a little bit of about that? Uh, first of all, you mentioned netting and multilateral netting. So what are actually the different types of netting, and what is that? Yeah, so there are primarily me uh, three methods of netting. Uh, settlement netting, you, know, you might have heard that, uh, or also known as payment netting. So we're just netting payments. Uh, settlement netting, and then bi uh, bilaterally, and then multilateral netting. So settlement netting uh, is basically subsidiaries will aggregate and offset all the amounts it either owes or receives to a particular vendor, and they'll net that difference. Uh, more common for intercompany payments. Uh, it's not so common, but can be done for third-party payments. It just makes the cash reconciliation process a lot uh, difficult, more difficult for them. Uh, bilateral, this is a process that involves two parties, so the supplier and the client. Uh, it's the process of aggregating invoices between the parties to one single agreement so that only one net payment stream is made and this is going to decrease the number of transactions between the parties and also reduce the cost of accounting activities like bank fees. But the limitation is that is just between two parties. So that's where multilateral netting comes in. So multilateral netting is a settlement mechanism used by companies to pay for goods and services purchased from affiliated companies. And the netting process consolidates intercompany transactions and calculates settlement requirements internally instead of making all those external payments. So at the end of the month, they're either going to pay or receive a single payment in their base currency. So it's a much more efficient uh, process. So that's very clear. The netting then, if our understanding is correct, is instead of making multiple payments, either you're in a bilateral setup or multilateral setup or in a settlement setup, you, instead of making multiple payments, you make only one, right? You aggregate the balances consider everything and before initiating a true payment you make sure okay this is the difference to be paid between the supplier for instance as you mentioned and myself the company is that a proper summary that, that's correct yes and it's more um even though it can be third-party suppliers it's usually just limited to the subsidiaries or what we call a participant so if you're able to participate in the netting cycle uh, you would be called a participant so this is a process where we're going to set up and establish a central entity that's called the netting center. And that becomes a party to all intercompany transactions with other entities, the participants. And so that uh, eliminates the need for multiple, multiple bilateral transactions because the netting center is going to hold all the currency accounts and do all the transfers that are required to satisfy the, the netting center uh, activity for the month. It's also going to go out and acquire the necessary currency that they uh, that they need to settle those obligations, and that uh, eliminates the need for participants or subsidiaries to go out on their own and purchase uh, FX. So it's much more centralized, 
Um, once you're an approved participant, um, you have to go through a tax and a legal review to see if you're able to participate in the in the actual netting cycle. That's one of the first steps that we have to go through. And then during the, uh, the month or another agreed upon uh, cycle duration, all the multilateral payments between participating entities or, or entities are then consolidated and then offset and then reduced to a single transaction to or from each participating entity uh, by accounts that are held at the centralized netting center. And these can be uh, either external accounts or internal accounts. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, mm -hmm. to go further. And then yeah. netting, it's usually processed as a payables-based system where the payer inputs the purchase invoices, or it can also be receivable-based where the receiver inputs the sales invoices. Most common will be the payables, and we'll, we'll drill down a little bit on this as well. Um, so why do corporates implement netting? So it's, it's really uh, a play to reduce the cost of making payments. It also brings structure and discipline to the intercompany process. And then, like I mentioned, netting can also be used to settle third-party transactions. Okay, so you have, uh, just, just for me to, to make sure we are 100% clear, you have three entities, for instance, Entity A, which will be the netting setter, right? And then Entity B and C and all the others. Entity B and C will have invoices between each other, but also with between B and A and C and A. All this happens throughout the month, but instead of sending payments and transactions for all those invoices, for instance, there will be only one, which is the netted one, towards A or from A to the other entities. And that's also the case for the transactions between entity B and C, which means B and C will actually never transact and they will only send and interact with A, or is that how it works? It, they will not interact directly. It'll only be through the course of um, settling invoices. So mm -hmm. these invoices can be in multiple currencies. And at the end yeah. of the month, it's going to be reduced and converted or triangulated back to the base currency. So if I'm a euro denominated entity, I could have 10 transactions with 10 different affiliates and 10 different currencies. But at the end of the day, everything's going to go back between me and the netting center for a euro equivalent uh, payment to settle those invoices. Okay. Um, and then there's a there's a concept of managing disputes. So if you see an invoice on your statement, um, you would uh, manage that dispute between the two affiliates. Like, hey, I paid you that, or hey, I didn't pay you that, or that's mm -hmm. invalid, or that's overcharged. And you usually leave it up to the participants to to fix that. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you, you explained it perfectly. Yep. Awesome. Uh, I think I saw who Sam raising his hands. <laughs> Uh, I, I had a question. Um, so uh, the, the, the easiest way I can, uh, I can uh, equate this to something uh, in my life is, have you heard about the app TreeCount or Splitwise? <laughs> oh, excellent. No, I have not. So, so it's like when you go on a trip with your friends, right? Everyone, say I buy dinner one night and Guillaume buys dinner another night and then someone buys, gets a taxi and someone gets this, you know? Um, and then instead of everyone keeping checks and balances, we just put everything into one account. And at the end of the trip, you kind of just say, okay, what the who is what, who, how much? And it kind of oh, balances great. everyone out and then you make one transaction instead. So is that is that the equivalent, basically? Uh, it's similar, uh, but you're likely all in one currency unless you're traveling throughout yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, so indeed, uh, you might be traveling 
to somewhere else and then but you're all like like for example I, it happened with me and Guillaume actually we went on a trip <clears throat> and uh can't remember where we went we were working a different currency to euros so I remember that Scotland. and then we had to yeah it was oh. when we were in the UK indeed and uh, we were in pounds and euros and it was mm -hmm. a bit you know a bit complicated yeah. and we just had this one app where okay so that's the basic equivalent I, I can draw I have another question um, we've done an episode in the past about cash pooling, so our 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 uh, listeners are very well uh, understand that very well. We even talked about how Bitcoin can be used for cash pooling in one of our episodes. Right. Um, so we know cash pooling very well. What's the difference between this and cash pooling? I feel like there's a subtle difference I'm not getting. Yeah, uh, cash pooling is really the precursor to an in-house bank where you're just tracking, um, we call them ZBA movements for lack of a better book transfers. So Think of cash pooling as just managing a checkbook. So opening position, receipts, disbursements, any position, and then with the in-house bank layered on a cash pool arrangement, then you could charge or pay interest optionally, where netting is just trying to satisfy all this intercompany churn. One of the companies I'm going to talk about has 90,000 invoices per month, all in 17 different currencies with 50 different participants so it's a much more um dynamic environment than cash pooling cash pooling is usually between the subsidiary and the parent uh, account or the parent company where i'm just lending and borrowing based on my position uh with the with the overall company this is more to get better visi visibility on the intercompany and handle the fx exposures and balances uh, you're trying to lower your costs. You're trying to reduce the number of funding requests, minimize the cross-border transfers. So there's a lot more at play or a lot more objectives of putting in a, a netting program. And if I if I may add something to that, Craig, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, also one of the key differences is, except if you're in a notional pooling structure, but let's keep it simple right now and let's just talk about ZBS or zero balance account. You have a physical transfer of cash every day, if not every week whatsoever, but usually it's every day at the end of the day in a cash pooling and you physically, between brackets, move the cash at least from one account to another. And the whole purpose of netting is actually not to move too much cash and only once a month for the aggregated balances. But indeed, with the entity A and the netting setter being linked to all the other entities and the other entities not being linked to each other in terms of physical transfers, the, the parallel is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the ZBA is typically triggered by the bank uh, at the end of the day, unless you're mm -hmm. going to calculate it and initiate it yourself, which uh, quite a few clients do that as well. But yeah, that was a good summary. Thank you. Awesome. Um, Craig, so can you quickly walk us through what are the primary benefits of multilateral netting? Let, let's maybe focus on this one. Yeah, and we'll get some more details around this, but the primary benefits would be uh, netting organizes and streamlines the settlement of the intercompany payments. So instead mm -hmm. of that 90,000 churn I was talking about, we're going to reduce that down to a single payment per or, or single receipt or payment per participant. Um, and it definitely gives you better visibility into the intercompany FX exposures and cash balances. So part of the netting, uh, if you're a corporate, part of your netting uh, re requirements or obligation is to settle all that different currency. So this gives you laser visibility as to what that exposure is, as opposed to having everyone doing their own thing. It's a much more controlled um, 
then the primary, you know, another primary benefit is just lowering those transaction costs, reduce those number of payments, reduce those funding requests and manual wire. So you're optimizing your operation as well. And then anytime you minimize cross-border transfers, you're also uh, minimizing risk. Uh, those are the riskiest types of transfers. So if I have less cross-border, I'm in a better position from a risk standpoint. And then I also reduce my tax treatment. So internal and external audit, uh, compliance risk, and improving audit, uh, accounting's ability to clearly reconcile at the end of the month. And then finally, it's gonna significantly reduce that, that physical intercompany uh, settlement or churn, if you will, uh, in between the, the, the subsidiaries. Yeah. Okay. Super clear. Thank you. And you mentioned you mentioned quite sometimes the um, the importance of the currencies. So you have a multilateral netting between different entities. What about those currencies? Are they actually so? When you make one payment, do you always make this payment in the same currency, or do you make sure to actually settle the invoices in each currency as well? And if, if in the first setup, do you apply an FX rate then? Uh, where is it defined? How does it work here? Okay, so the um, when you establish your netting center, you're going to establish uh, a location, a physical location for that. And we'll talk a bit about that as well. But you'll settle a, a physical location and you'll establish a base currency for the whole program, either Euro, USD, GBP, depending on the makeup of your company. And then when you set up a participant, there's two critical things you have to decide. Are you going to settle physically or are you going to settle uh, internally? And then each entity is going to have a single currency. So we'll call it their functional currency. All activity or payments or settlements will be of that currency. And then on a, a monthly basis, you're going to put in uh, FX rates. And what it will do is triangulate. So say it's a euro. GBP invoice, it'll triangulate to that base currency and make that uh, that proper assessment as to what that value of that invoice is. And that would just do a running subtotal of in, out, or pay me, I paid, pay me, pay me. Uh, and then it'll just give you a net number that you settle with the, uh, with the center. So there is, um, when you see a statement, I think it becomes more clear as to how it works. And then I'll uh, I'll walk through like a typical netting cycle. Awesome. Great. Can I ask a much more basic question? Why do companies do intercompany transfers in the first place? Like that this becomes so complex. Like w in which scenarios are we? Um, is one entity paying to another and and whatnot? Yeah. So they're essentially sharing their resources. So if one entity has excess goods or services or whatever they they provide whatever the company does they'll transfer that to another entity and then there's a fee that needs to be paid based on that so if you think about uh, i'm going to be talking about a cleaning company and they might they have 85,000 customers one entity in the uk could be short you know 5,000 cases of a certain product and another entity could be long of that product and they could send that across to that uk entity once they send that product there become uh, they create an obligation for that uk to pay them the equivalent cost of that product basically and it's going to generate an invoice so even like inside the same company you set up different entities if if you exchange goods between inside the same company you need to pay yourself your other 
partner company entity, right? Yeah, that's right. Because they're all they're all uh, calculating their profit loss separately. It is a consolidated view at the end, but as they're operating throughout the the quarter or the month, uh, they're on separate. Um, I guess if I buy goods, I'm not just going to give it to you for free. Is the best way to look yeah. at it. I'm going even more basic than that. Why do companies set up different entities in different uh, in different regions or whatever? It's um, usually due to tax and legal and the nature of the business, as opposed to having one large entity. They're going to carve it up into different buckets. Um, it could also be a product of acquisitions, where you just keep grabbing more companies and adding on to it. Um, it's a way of reporting as well for accounting. So I'm working with a, a clinic that does uh, di dialysis for kidney uh, kidney functions. Every single different center is an entity. So that allows them to track everything separately. So it's really just a bucket for tracking tax purposes and uh, financial performance. Okay, so if I can summarize then, the and correct me if I'm wrong. So companies will set up different entities in different regions because different regions have different tax regulations that they need to account for separately. Maybe there's some tax benefits to being separated into smaller companies and being one big company with lots of different branches. So typically companies will set up different entities in different regions. Between those different entities, you may have exchange of goods or services even. So maybe the CEO of the company sits in one location and all the other ones need to you know, pay him for his time or something like that. Um, or accounting sits in one division and then you need to pay for the accounting division. Uh, so you need to create invoices between those different entities that you've created in different regions. To do that, there's going to be pluses and minuses throughout your cycle, whatever you define that to be, a day, a week, a month. Um, and then what you do is instead of making every single payment, you just wait until the end of the cycle, do the pluses and minuses and pay the difference only right and that simplifies everything because you'd be working across the different exchanges yeah. yeah the net amount exactly netting being the net amount so and the reason mm -hmm. that's beneficial is because there might be like different exchange rates you need to account for there might be bank transfer fees uh there might be all these other things that are just overall complexity and accounting difficulties which mean that it's just easier to do it in one go at the end that, is that a good summary of everything we've talked about? Yeah, that's right. We're trying to just minimize the impact of these intercompany movements. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're quite significant at, at a lot of companies, just based on what they do. It, it'll vary based on what they do. But once you okay. get to be like a, a global national, it's going gonna, it's gonna to churn up a lot more because you have that many more entities, that many more co uh, tax complexities. Uh, and that's where you'll really see it with a, a multinational. Very cool. Very clear. Thank you. So you mentioned multinational netting, multilateral netting. Sorry. How exactly does multilateral netting work in in the technicalities of it? Okay. Let me try and um, at a high level, I'll walk you through a, a netting cycle. So there's two components to a netting cycle. It's processing the actual cycle itself. So all the different invoices for the, the month. And there's a process of closing the netting cycle. So to uh, process the netting cycle, the first thing you're gonna do is open it up 
So you're going to open the netting cycle, which means, okay, now I can input or import invoices. It's eligible to start receiving invoices. Then my next step would be to import or input the preliminary FX rates that are going to apply to the cycle. These can change too. You can have a rate as of the 5th and then right before you close the cycle on the 30th, you could put in a refreshed rate. It's usually not uh, the prevailing rate every day. It's usually a set date, uh, set date and a set rate, which uh, usually goes back to the accounting rate that's being used. So your accounting books are gonna match what you're doing for netting. Um, then the next step is to generate preliminary statements. So I've input all the invoices, I put FX rates in, now I'm gonna spit out, let's say I have 50 participants, I'm gonna spit out 50 statements for them to look at and say, as of right now, this is what it looks like. You're gonna owe this or you're gonna get paid this. And this is their chance to uh, dispute any items that they don't feel are correct with the other participants. Um, so these usually get generated out via email as of a certain date and they have up to a certain date to resolve it or leave it as the final adjustment. So that's processing it all. And I'm just waiting for them to say, okay, or waiting for that date to expire. No more looking at it. Then there's a process of closing the cycle. So this is where you're gonna put in your final FX rates. You're gonna process your intercompany or external settlements. So the settlements, when I say settlements, I'm saying, what do I owe? Or what am I gonna get paid? That's the settlement I'm referring to. So it's one transaction per cycle, per participant. Then I have to release the payment if they're external. So I'm gonna send them to the bank if it's actually an external payment. And then I'm gonna distribute final statements. This is the best and final, this is what happened. And then you close the cycle, waiting to the next month to open it back up. When this is set up properly, it's really 99% automated. And it's just a matter of managing it and putting in the right inputs. Um, and then having somebody at corporate distribute the, the rates and send the payments out. But this becomes a very automated process uh, and efficient. Okay, um, quick question on my side, Craig. Um, in one of our recent interview with uh, Daniel from a, a big, fast consumer good company, uh, we talked about payment terms and the importance of when you establish a, a partnership with a, either a supplier or a client to say, to agree properly on when you need to get paid, right? In this netting cycle, when you open it, do the payment terms need to be exactly the same across all the group's entities or are the payments due throughout the cycle, but the beneficiaries need to wait for the closing of the cycle? How does it work here? Because entities might have to wait and then it's put in jeopardy their cash flows, right? How does it work? Yeah, it's, it's up to um, the company to decide what invoices that they're going to uh, interface. So if you're payables based, the payer has the option to block any invoice they do not want to pay in that cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, and because if they did, it could you know increase the disputes. But if you're receivables based, that's where they would be able to block any invoices that they're not ready to pay as well. So it's really a case by case basis. Um, most of the clients are interfacing with their ERP. So they can send the parameters or the date that they want to grab, like a due date, for example. They mm -hmm. can they can uh, filter all those invoices they want to bring into the process based on that due date. 
And that's how they can control the terms because that due date is going to be set up based on the terms that are agreeable for that those two parties. So then you can choose which invoice you include into the cycle or not, but then you don't have a, a netting process that takes into account everything, right? You just cherry pick which invoices. Um, it, yeah, it's okay. selected based on the due date where the due date is taking into account the terms that have been established in when you set up the relationship between the vendor and the entity. Super clear. And so typically, just uh, for our information, how long... I mean, what's the length of a typical netting cycle then? Is it 10 days, 30 days, three months? One, one calendar month, unless the organization's on like a 5-4-4, and then they adopt their accounting cycle. But if their accounting cycle's calendar, it's, it's usually a month, and it closes up on the last business day of that month and typically settles that same day as well. But you can be flexible with settling the next business day. But more, uh, more than not, it's going to be at the end of the day. Uh, end of the month, sorry. What are the typical challenges prior to implementing anything? Because I guess um, you're holding for us the, the specificity of the implementation um, that we can't wait for. But what are the challenges prior to that? So why would you want to implement the netting in the first place? Yeah, uh, sure, I can answer that. Uh, so most of the clients or companies that implement uh, netting are large multinational uh, companies with a very complex legal structure with intercompany balances across many countries and currencies. And they, they're going to face uh, several challenges prior to implementing a netting that they're trying to solve for. One could be around large payment volumes. So they have a high bank transaction fees, they have settlement risk, they have FX payment costs. So they want to address that. And the way to address that is to reduce the payment volumes. There could be, uh, because we're dealing with, let's say, 50 countries, 80 countries, there could be an inefficient use of resources where there's a high manual effort to enter and release payments. There's a time-consuming GL posting process. Uh, anytime that you uh, introduce manual effort, you're gonna, it's going to be error-prone. So some of this uh, reasoning to implement would be uh, an efficiency play just to get more efficiency out of the resources that you have. And then one of the final areas would be under the tax and legal compliance area. Intercompany invoices may not be settled within the payment terms, as we just were talking about. Yeah. And also for FX payment costs, uh, just to reduce those, the netting process will reduce those greatly. So those are the three major uh, areas. Okay. Okay, that's super clear. And to come back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, uh, settling physically and internally. Can you can you walk us through what the difference is here and what company would rather go for? Yeah, sure. And uh, you don't have to pick one or the other. You do per participant, but you can have a hybrid across your whole program. So multilateral netting is going to sum and convert each entity's transactions, payments into a single local currency. And that's going to be the amount they have to pay or they have to receive from the netting center. So once they calculate that amount, there's two options to settling it. Uh, you can settle the monthly pay or two or the receive two uh, amount. You can settle it internally if you have an existing in-house banking structure. So this will eliminate the need for an, an actual wire to go out of the participant's bank account in their base currency or out of the netting center's physical bank account and base currency. 
So if you have the option to settle internally, that's the ideal uh, scenario. But that would require an in-house bank and a netting to work side by side. Okay. There, there are limitations to settling internally. Some countries, uh, for example, Taiwan, Singapore, and China, they don't permit settlement on the in-house bank account. So in these cases, the payment must be made physically. Uh, and most TMS, Treasury Management Systems, should support either of those methods. Um, I see a combination. There's some companies that just choose to settle everything physically. Uh, but if you have that in-house bank power, it's it's definitely worth using. Again, you're reducing your physical payments. Okay. Um, but then, sorry, being a bit the, the devil's advocate here, or oh, I'm not sure of my English expression, but then you create an intercompany loan, right? Because one entity will still owe money to another. You, you still have something to settle, no? Yeah, so it's not uh, necessarily an intercompany loan. It is a it's an increase to my IHB balance or a decrease to my IHB balance. But when we say when we say interco loan, it's more of an interco movement as opposed to a loan. Typically has terms and conditions. This is just mm -hmm. a, an increase of ten grand or a decrease of ten grand to my balance, depending on the direction that it's going. <laughs> so it's no different. It's no different from taking a loan, right? Like a ZBA or uh, another mm -hmm. movement such as that. It's just additional money that should factor into your overall balance because if you're a positive, uh, you're going to be receiving interest. If you're negative, you're going to be paying interest. So these amounts, the netting amounts at the end of the month would factor into that interest settlement. Okay, so you have on top of your netting cycle, you keep track of the balances if you're settling internally you keep track of the balances negative or positive between the entities and you need to pay interest as well on top of that but the payment of this interest would be taking form with the physical transaction right or do you also include that into the netting that uh so once this monthly amount is calculated mm -hmm. the parts netting netting shuts down and that movement or settlement just goes into the in-house bank as just another regular uh, interco transaction. Okay. So it's it's either an obligation or a receipt that you'll receive against your in-house bank account. And that interest um, interest would be calculated by the in-house bank, and the in-house bank would pay uh, withholding tax if if it applies. Mm -hmm. It would either settle the interest physically or it also has the option to settle it internally or basically capitalize it, which would be adding it back or subtracting it from the balance further. Okay, that's uh, that's rather clear. Greg, what's, a, what's an in-house bank? I've never heard of an in-house bank before. What does it take yeah. to have an in-house bank? Uh, yeah, so it could be another topic for another day, but... Yeah. <laughs> It is um, it's a, a method that companies use to make best use of their own money. So they'll set up uh, an in-house bank and an in-house bank is gonna operate just like a regulatory bank without the fees, without the interest. It's gonna use the corporation's money as a whole and you're gonna have a position with the bank. So let's say you're entity A and you have $10 million excess the bank is gonna take that from you and use it for obligations that other uh, participants need. So if you had 10, 10 million euro, 
somebody needs four, they're going to transfer that four to that entity. And then everyone, think of it, I like this analogy as it's a checkbook. I have an opening position. I have ins and outs all throughout the month. And then I have an ending position. That ending position is not, it's, it's my position with the in-house bank. So if I'm long, I would get interest paid to me. If I was short, I would pay interest. So from the bank's perspective, they're just grabbing all the money, pulling it together and transferring it out. You can get sophisticated models that might do things like payment on behalf of, receipt on behalf of. So a payment on behalf of or POBO, that's where corporate is making all the payments on behalf of the subsidiary. So they don't have to get accounts in those various currencies. And then they're just being charged um, that amount against their balance that they owe to the bank. Hopefully that makes it clear. <laughs> no, uh, so so it's it's not like you fulfill all of those transactions with a partner bank. You you really just are you're so big you could be a bank yourself. Yeah, it's all your money, um, so yeah. you don't have but between different entities. Of, yeah, there's a lot of benefits. Um, similar to netting where I don't want subsidiary A going out to a bank and saying that they need 10 million mm -hmm. uh, of a certain currency because they're going to have to pay uh, a markup on that where I have 10 million euro I can give them without having that external either loan or paying a, a fee for that. So that's making the best use of the capital that the, the organization has. Yeah. Yeah, and so ju just to add a little bit of that, and again, um, Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, but the in-house bank would be basically having a group of such a size that when you properly centralize all the processes, all the cash, when you have a proper netting system in place and so on, you can have one entity or a few that are dedicated to act as the bank of the group and will have the same functions and will be able to lend money or borrow money to and from different entities within the group, whilst of course optimizing the interest payments here because you do not pay an external party, which would be an external bank, but then the different entities of the group. Is that Yeah, right? think of the bank as the center. So they mm -hmm. would control everything. You can, uh, you can have one bank or you can have multiple banks. So if it's a large organization, sometimes you'll have a bank in the US and they'll service all the US accounts. Uh, you'll have a bank in Euro uh, Europe and they'll service all the Europe accounts. Asia, same thing. Uh, but you could get away with one bank, uh, but the in-house bank is the one that holds all the chips. So they're they're paying out, they're receiving, and they're coordinating all that those movements. Uh, it's similar to netting in a way. Uh, except that it usually involves a lot of external transfers as opposed to uh, internal. Mm. Okay. And if you have the two together, that's where you leverage the power of the in-house bank because now I can settle to the IHB and I don't send a single payment out unless I have one of those restricted entities or countries. Very clear. I think you only do need to do a dedicated episode on this indeed because my, my concept of what a bank is is being blown apart right now. It's a fascinating topic and uh, yeah, definitely we'll dig into that. Okay. So, so going back again to another uh, term that you used, uh, Craig, earlier, uh, you said something about tables-based netting and receivables-based netting. What, can you help us understand what those are? What yeah, are? so these are um, 
these are just two approaches to upload invoices. You can either do it from the AP perspective or you can do it from the AR perspective. When you're doing it from the payables, uh, the payee, who's the receiver, is, is the one that is inputting or interfacing the invoices. So they control the settlement uh, in the netting cycle. Most netting centers are run on a payables basis because it's a simple and effective way uh, to reduce the cost of making external payments. And the payer usually has the option, like I was mentioning, to block any invoice that they do not want to pay in the current cycle, uh, which can lead to uh, increased disputes, but it's, it's an allowable event. And receivables-based netting, this is where the payer is the one inputting or in, in interfacing the invoices so they control what is set in the netting cycle. And it's based on uh, sales, uh, sales receipts. So this is a little different approach. And in my experience, not too often uh, do a, does a company go down this path. They're usually gonna go payables because it's hard to control the, the receivables. Where payables, we know we have it out there. We know the data on it and it's a lot more, uh, more, more it's a better approach in my view. But so Craig, sorry, huh? we, <laughs> we yeah. challenge every every single answer, but it's, it's just to, to dig into it because that, that's super interesting. Um, the AP of an entity is the AR of another, right? What one entity needs to pay is what another needs to receive. And since we are within the same group, we are talking about the same thing here in the end, because if I need to pay you, Craig, um, mm -hmm. I have an account payable towards your account and you have an account receivable towards me, but so if we are within the same group, whomever input this invoice, it will be the same at the end, no? Or what's the nuance that I'm not seizing here? Yeah, I think um, I think the payable is a lot more reliable and predictable because the receivable, it's gonna fluctuate based on when somebody decides to pay it. Where when you establish the payable side, you know the due date, you know it's sound, you know, you can almost rely that it's going to happen where receivables is just not as predictable. Uh, it's not as easy to interface. Okay. I, so I hear your argument. And I don't have the strong answer for what, no, 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 that makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, how is the AR, the account receivable materialized exactly? Because indeed an account payable is the invoice that I receive um, and that I, that I need to pay. But the AR would be the sales receipt, for instance, the one you mentioned before. Yeah, it could, it could be a sales receipt. It could be yeah. money that are outside of uh, the internal process. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Okay. Let's see Whereas the payable is just that. It's the in, only the interco payments with a specific mm -hmm. due date. So now I can filter on interco and I can filter on due date. And I know I have the right set of data to introduce. That's clear. Thank you. Um, yeah, another question we had um, is what are the key considerations when you set up a netting program? So you talked about all those different ones, right? So the settlements, the bilateral, the multilateral, um, why would the company do that? But so let's say I'm a massive company and I want to set up a netting program. What are the key considerations I should think of? Yeah, so there's there's four primary ones. and. What I'm talking about now is just when I'm establishing my program. It's not the mechanics of operating it. It's the precursor of getting a, a cycle in place. So the first one would be technology. 
second would be choosing a net, netting center location. The third would be the tax impacts, uh, as well as the uh, regulatory issues. So from a technology standpoint, technology doesn't get it all done, but it's a key enabler for multilateral netting. I have to have a product that can perform all the functions that I need. I need the ability to generate preliminary statements, final statements in an automated way. Uh, I need the system to be able to support you know, payables or receivables. Uh, I need it to be accessible by the participants if necessary. So keep picking that piece of software, evaluating that piece of software specifically as it pertains to netting, and then ultimately selecting it is a key first step, just making sure that you have the technology in place to actually do this. Uh, it's not something you would do in Excel, for example. And then the next thing, this is where you're going to have to get tax involved, but choosing the netting center location. So based on the, where you choose to locate your uh, netting center, this could have potential tax drawbacks or benefits. So the, the tax team needs to analyze it, um, make recommendations. Where I usually see the Treasury Center being located is in Luxembourg, uh, Switzerland, the UK, Netherlands, Ireland. So essentially tax-friendly locales. Uh, it also depends on where you're located uh, that's a driver as well but picking that spot is key uh, the tax imp impacts in certain countries uh, could allow you or could make you pay withholding taxes as well so you have to be aware of that and then there's various regulatory issues at the local level that define what countries can uh, participate in netting and what restrictions are on those participants so some allow you to participate but you have to provide reporting to the central bank for example mm. other countries you can't participate at all so that tax and legal review would go through each one of your participants or entities and determine who's in who's out and then how you structure your 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 program so those are the key ones um, there's other considerations as you go to implement but to start with I would focus on those. Okay. Um, so most of them are crystal clear um, on top of that. I'd, I'm not sure we want to dig into the tax and legal considerations of each location. But there'll be a, a small question on my side will be, you mentioned the technology aspect, which was actually the first one I think you mentioned. Is it something typically that you can do in a TMS or in your treasury management system? Or are you looking at more specialized tools because of the complexity of it? Yeah, a good uh, point. So most TMSs can accommodate netting. So mm -hmm. Kariba, Quantum, FIS Quantum, mm -hmm. uh, G Treasury actually recently just bought Coprocess, which was a strong netting product. So they're in the process of incorporating that into their TMS. And then for those that are implementing S, uh, SAP, they ha also have a netting module uh, within their, their offering. But a TMS, uh, most of the popular TMSs will be able to handle the netting. That doesn't uh, mean that you don't evaluate and run through your test cases, but they, they, uh, you want to talk to references, make sure that they're actually working on it and doing it. So, uh, yeah, TMSs would be able to handle this, the right ones. Yeah, super clear. Thank you. So, Craig, you mentioned like um, a few different departments beyond treasure. We had um. Mike Richards on our show uh, a few weeks ago, 
who is a treasury recruiter. And one of the lines that came out of that was that treasury is a lot of interdepartment play. Uh, you really touch every single department in a company. So uh, with that in mind, you mentioned legal, you mentioned tax, you've also mentioned tech now. Um, who are all the different parties involved in setting up a netting process? Sounds like it's more than just treasury themselves. Yeah, it's great to uh, lead in for this because the accounting team has to be involved. So they're going to be responsible for monitoring, entering, and reconciling intercompany balances and payments. So they need input to the process. They won't actually be the ones executing the netting, uh, but they'll be uh, taking those transactions and having to reconcile uh, the interco balance as well as the payments. <laughs> then a big big part of this is getting corporate and international tax involved they need to sign off on the netting structure uh, actually recommend the netting structure and they'll be the ones that would research all the tax regulations determine who can and cannot participate in the program they'll also be reaching out to local teams because there could be some local regulations that are at a lower level than the country regulation so they have to be a strong partner in this. You're also gonna need the financial operations and ERP team. A, uh, a small component of this is to integrate your invoices normally from an ERP into Kariba or into Quantum, uh, either at an individual invoice level or an aggregated level. So there's a, an element of uh, data exchange there that has to take place. Then uh, we can't get away from having to drag in legal. So legal would be drafting up the netting agreements, setting the terms and conditions, and any other ongoing document requirements that are at the country or local level. <laughs> and then finally, um, treasury would be there for managing the netting cycle, executing the settlements, both internal and external, doing the FX management, the trade execution, uh, monitoring and compliance, and they're a big factor into the technology selection along with uh, any IT involvement. So it's essentially the whole whole company. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that's how it sounds. <laughs> but that makes sense, right? Since it's account payables and account receivables, you need the, the sales and the accounting party. If you want a proper netting center, you need to consult the tax and legal department. So that's, yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. All this sounds like a nightmare to forecast your cash because you don't really know what's going on until mm. until later on. Like it's it's a whole because you net everything at the end. It, it, what's the implications of this in cash forecasting overall for a company? Again, a topic uh, that we've discussed previously and highlight is an important aspect of corporate treasury overall. Yeah, so the the interco movements don't really impact the the forecasting in a big way because these are all washes. They're essentially a net-net transaction from a forecasting standpoint. So the forecasting is gonna be driven by the corporate treasuries function that they have in place, where you know a lot of times they'll collect estimates from, uh, from the subsidiaries. Sometimes they'll collect interco, but on their overall forecast, it should net out, right? Because one person's gonna say, I'm expecting a million. Well, I'm, a, I'm sending a million. You know, so there's no real true forecast implications. No, so the okay, forecast even net to zero. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't is it mean the, you don't you 
you can still report it if you want the visibility by entity, but from a consolidated standpoint, it's it's a net. And so this is because the intercompany movements are in the end rather small in terms of volumes compared to the overall volumes of transactions or um they could be large but let's say you had a forecast on entity a that says i'm getting a million dollars so they're mm -hmm. looking for a million entity b is going to have a forecast that says i'm paying a million so from a consolidation standpoint it's a zero okay yeah indeed makes sense <clears throat> Um, and again, just to uh, <laughs> to dig a little bit in the details and out of curiosity, are there certain industries or type of companies that would have much more volumes of intercompany transactions than other? I, I cannot think of any. That's that's why I'm I'm a bit curious about it. Yeah, uh, like the company I'm going to highlight later um, had ninety thousand invoices per month, and it's mainly because they're they do have consumer products. Mm -hmm. So that churns a lot of in and outs throughout, you know, 85,000 different customers. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it, it's a case by case, though. But if you look at getting detailed invoices, there could be hundreds of thousands. So you want uh, in those cases where there's extreme volume, you would just summarize those and bring them in at a high level. OK, mm -hmm. um, that's the that's the perfect transition, Craig. Um, what is actually the treasury consulting offer uh, that you have at Actualize Consulting and that maybe you do personally? Yeah. Um, so in terms of multilateral netting, uh, we can assist clients with the tasks across the full product lifecycle. So from discovery, we'll work with the tax and legal for specific market data gathering. So help them make that decision that they'll ultimately be the ones making the decision, but we can help uh, liaise with the local markets to get that information. Uh, we also do the planning, so defining requirements, objectives, and defining a rollout plan uh, for the whole implementation. And then we'll do the design. So we're going to design the approach for implementation, identify any limitations, uh, such as countries that can't participate. Uh, and then, of course, we, we do the implementation of the solution in the technology of, uh, of choice. So the, the TMS or the ERP that you've chosen to implement netting. And then for go live, we'll provide support as needed. So it's really a, a full full shop. Yeah, sounds uh, sounds like an end to an offer. Um, is there any chance that you that you walk us through a netting implementation or optimization project that you did for a client? Uh, yeah, so we can talk about um, this company. We'll be profiling as a it's a provider of cleaning and hygiene products uh, in healthcare, mm -hmm. food and beverage, food service, retail, facility management. And with COVID, they had you know a pretty good growth spurt. So they had a lot of different invoices to take care of. Um, their revenue is just under 3 billion, but they have 85,000 customers and they operate in 80 different countries. So the challenge they had was a very high volume of invoices, uh, close to 100,000 invoices monthly. They were operating in 17 different currencies, which makes the, the cross-border invoices a little um, you know, more challenging. Um, they ultimately decided to put 50 different participants uh, into the program out of the, the 80, 80 countries that they operate in. And at the same time, we're doing this, we're replacing a legacy netting system, um, Euro netting, 
was going away. So we had to get this fully functional from start to finish in under 60 days. So there was an aggressive timeline. Um, we had you know some information to work from, but it was still the 60 days is a very aggressive timeline to put this in top to bottom. So the solution we chose was Kariba SaaS uh, TMS. That was the technology piece that we used. Uh, we decided to go payables based, uh, just based on uh, some conversations we had before, why that's the better choice. And then over, uh, we set up over 50 entities uh, that would receive statements every month. We did a full integration with SAP. So SAP was our source for uploading invoices. They had a couple different instances, so we had to have you know different formats uh, based on where the entity was located and what SAP instance they were under. And then the unique piece with this one is the settlement was all intercompany accounts where possible. So they already had the in-house bank structure put in place. So it was a natural fit to try and settle everything intercompany wise uh, where possible, you know, about the, the countries I talked about before. And then, so the benefits and results that we realized were, you know, only three participants had to settle physically. Okay. Everything else remained uh, intercompany via the Creva in-house bank structure. Mm -hmm. So this allowed us to reduce uh, separate transactions uh, into one FX trade per currency. Mm -hmm. We reduced uh, FX currency fluctuations uh, on the intercompany balances. We you know, we did the process, the whole process assists the accounting and the reconciliation and tax for transfer pricing policies, which we didn't talk about um, today. Mm -hmm. uh, overall, massive reduction in costs, uh, simplification of settlement process because it was just pushing in internally and it was an easier and safer control of uh, payments and FX. And then, you know, from the client's perspective, some of the lessons learned were to coordinate with the local accounting, tax, and legal terms uh, up front early, mm -hmm. establish a clear project role and responsibilities, set a clear roadmap, project plan, and stick to deadlines. When we're talking 60 days, that's that's a must. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we implemented a standard process across all entities. We didn't want anyone doing their own thing. So everyone followed the exact same process. <clears throat> and then we integrate with the ERP, which eliminates or limits the manual input that's required. And they felt that uh, contracting a professional service firm with prior experience implementing netting was uh, one of their best decisions. And um, yeah, so it was a great project up and running 60 days. That's I don't sad. think that would happen with a normal client that did not have a existing netting process in place. Yeah. Um, because of all the upfront work that would have to be done with uh, legal and tax. Makes sense. Agreement. So that's, um, that's a lot of, I mean, first of all, that's impressive, uh, a lot of qualitative benefits. Uh, but my, my consulting senses are, are tickling a bit from um, so from a number of transaction standpoints. So you mentioned 90,000, I think, or close to 100,000 transactions, yeah. uh, invoices per, per month. month. Uh, and you end up with only three entities making transactions. So that means what you went from 90,000 transactions a month to, to three? Correct. Yeah. Because okay. it all funnels through the IHB. 
Um, okay, no, that, that, that's impressive. Um, any any other aspects of uh, of actualized consulting and or netting that you would like to uh, to highlight or to to add that we may have forgot to mention? No, I think the you know the two major takeaways from this uh, would be if you're going to go down this road is to involve your tax and legal. Um, they're pivotal to a successful program, and then just select the right consulting partner to help you design and implement your your program. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I think uh, it was really valuable to hear from someone that's done netting himself <clears throat> about netting as it is. So that was super valuable. Thank you for coming. Um, if people want to find out more about you or actualized consulting, where can they go? Yeah, so the best place uh, to see about all the different offerings that Actualize uh, has would be to go to their website. And it's uh, actualizedconsulting.com. Awesome. And so the, you guys do you guys do treasury consulting overall, right? So netting processes, anything, anything else, uh, all the other stuff, right? That you mentioned at the start. Yeah, at the start. So it's uh, implementations, workstation implementations, uh, current state evaluations. So. One of the newest things uh, that we've been doing is something called a health check, where we go into mm -hmm. a client that already has an existing system in place, and we're gonna do a current state uh, review. We're gonna do any technology gap analysis. We're gonna develop a roadmap for them to increase the uh, usage of their system or to consider moving on to a, a different vendor. So that's, uh, I've been active with that. I'm, I'm currently doing three projects uh, right now. And then we also do uh, risk management and treasury operations. So all the things you would think, payments, cash management, cash flow, in-house bank, uh, debt and investment tracking, everything so, you would need. So. <laughs> That's perfect. Cool. And um, what I propose is that we um, we put in the in the show note the links uh, to the actualized mm -hmm. consulting website, obviously, but also uh, your LinkedIn profile. In that sense, for you, so people can reach out. And yeah, send you. yeah, they can definitely reach out if they want to talk netting or in-house bank or anything else. Uh, actualized mm -hmm. any services they're interested in. Well, now that you propose, we may have an episode on in-house bank, as <laughs> Sam mentioned earlier. So don't tempt us. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Based awesome, there. Greg. Thank you very much. Um, it was super insightful. Thank you very much. Having an expert on netting is definitely making a difference. Um, so thank you very much. Okay. Thanks thank for having you, me. Greg. Anytime. Thank you.